Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. Now, David Bowie sang, Time may change me, but I can't trace time. And I'm joined today by the one person who I'm fairly confident can trace time, and that's the physicist Carlo Rovelli, whose new book is called The Order of Time. And it's a small, enormously elegant, enormously productive and suggestive and thought-provoking explanation of just exactly what time is. Carlo, welcome. Thank you very much. Carlo, ever since Stephen Hawking, we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of books which purport to explain the kind of world of speculation of theoretical physics and quantum mechanics and astronomy to a wider public. Yours seem to be far and away the most successful. In the first place, why is there such an appetite for these books, do you think? And in the second, what is it do you think that you're doing right, if, if you're the right person to ask about that? Look, there is a lot of popular science which uh, aims at uh, people who are passionate about science and want to know more. I don't write for those people. <laughs> I write for the rest of us, which include all the people who know very little about science, who don't know science, and who haven't yet been captured by science. So my book is um, both this book and The Seven Lessons of Physics, which I wrote some time ago, is a book that says, look, there is something fascinating in here, and talk to a much wider audience. And the way I write is not trying to say as much as possible on a topic, but trying to say as little as possible on a topic, but the core of it. That's what I try to do. For somebody who, I'm afraid, you know, like me, has no grasp at all of maths, I mean, I remember trying to read... Roger Penrose's book, The Road to Reality. And oh boy, that's, you know, that's a book that, uh, it's a fantastic book, it's one of my preferred books, but I would say I don't know anybody capable of understanding the whole of it. You need to be a specialist to understand each chapter of it. I love that book, it's incredibly rich in ideas, uh, but I have not understood part of that book. Oh, well, I'm glad you say so, because he has little smiley faces, according to, you know, how difficult the maths is. Yes. And I, you know, even the smiliest of faces I was defeated by. But the, the thing that lingers as a suspicion for the non-specialist is the way in which you go about trying to translate some insights, which are, I guess, in, by nature, kind of mathematical. How much are you forced to sort of falsify them in order to translate them into metaphor? Is everything that we know about quantum gravity or string theory or, you know, whatever these, these fields might be, can everything be translated into a metaphor or something that, that the non-mathematician can understand? Well, there's some things that actually you have to be able to do the maths. I would like to think that the answer to this question is, is zero, nothing at all. Namely, mm, there is no violation of the, actual, of the actual story. Let me give you an example. If you think about past science, it becomes comprehensible. Um, take the book of Copernicus, The Revolution, The Revolution. It's a very difficult book, full of hard, tough mathematics, very subtle points, looking for particular coincidences in Ptolemy theory and finding them. And uh, you need to understand geometry, the tables and tables of numbers and trigonometric uh, relations, very complicated graphs. To go into that book, to appreciate the shining intelligence and beauty of that book, uh, it takes uh, somebody who is fully immersed in that professionally. Now, what does this book say? The book says 
that the Earth is not the center of the universe. It's a big stone that is rotating on itself, is spinning, and it's going around the sun. Am I betraying the content of the book? Not at all. That's the message. That's the key of the, of the story. To argue for it, to demonstrate it, to, to make a good convincing story about it, you need all the rest. And in fact, then to prove it, you need telescopes, you need delicate calculations. But the point is that the Earth is a big rock spinning on itself and around the sun and nothing else. I'm not betraying it. I'm getting to the core of it. And it's easy to do that with Copernicus because many centuries have gone through. We've fully digested uh, uh, the meaning, the implication, uh, the heavy load which goes around this, uh, this fact. But the core is simple. And I want to believe that this is true for all the sciences uh, and it's true in physics even for the most hard part of physics. The reason it's so hard to do the same with quantum mechanics, say, is that we haven't digested it yet. (laughs) We meaning the scientists, not the large public. But uh, one should distinguish science in its making from the result of science. And that's not just science, it's like music is the same. I mean, could I be able to write as Beethoven quoted? No, (laughs) by far. Can I appreciate a Beethoven quoted? Yes. It takes some some education, but I think I can, maybe not as well as a musician, but I can get to the beauty, to the meaning which is there. And I think this can be done for for science as well. Well, you've you've taken on quite a subject in time, which is something that, you know, even before you make a scientific approach to it, people have found this a mysterious sort of subject. I mean, can you say, is, is time... May, I mean, this may be the wrong question, but is time a thing or is it a property of other things? Ah, great. No, this is the, the question. I think it's, it's not a thing, and that's what we're really understanding about time in these years, if I, if, if I may say so. And it's not a property of, of one other thing, because time as we know it, and by time here I mean the full complexity of our experience of time, it's layered It's properties of many different things. It's a very complex and structured notion, the notion of time. Look, in English language, you can rank the nouns in terms of how commonly used they are. And you go to Wikipedia and look at the ranking. And the the single most used word, noun, in English is time. That's extraordinary. Right. And it isn't more than that, because uh, out of the first five which, if I remember where I may be wrong, it's um, time, year, person, time, person, year, thing, and day. So out of these five, three, time, day, and year, are temporal concepts. So we are immersed in temporality. We think in terms of time. We organize the world in terms of time. We organize our life, everything. We, we, well, it's pretty impossible to think of human consciousness without giving it a time dimension. Exactly, it? exactly. So it's stronger than that. I think it's a, we could think of a world without space, right? I mean, we can think of a world of yeah. pure thought. We can imagine it. We can guess it. We can think of a world, take away everything you want from the world. But you cannot think of a world in which you live without time. So time is a, it's, it's part of our structure of the world, but it's not a single thing. That's the point. I think what science is telling us is, uh, to put it bluntly and, and, and wrongly, but uh, that, uh, that Kant was wrong <laughs> and Newton was wrong. Time is not a primary single concept in terms of which the rest is organized. It's a very structured notion. We think a time as containing a lot of aspects, 
a lot of properties. Uh, time is directed, time is common to all of us, uh, time is unique, uh, time is measured by clock. And in each of these sentences, we're talking about something else, something different. In one, we're talking about our brain. In one, we're talking about thermodynamics. In one, we're talking about fundamental physics. So what I try to do in the book is open up this content, break it apart, like you break it apart, uh, the engine of your motorbike, uh, and say, this belongs to that, this belongs to that. And most of these... um, The one thing that you seem to, if I'm not misreading you, hang on to is this, this governing metaphor of time's arrow, that it can only move in one direction. Your book's only equation is these... You know, the equation to the second law of thermodynamics, which is time's arrow. But you say, you seem, I think, to say that's the one thing we can hang on to, that all these different aspects of it, it does only move in one direction. Is that fair? Yes, it's fair. The, the, it, it's, it's an old discovery in physics that has stunned, stunned the, the, the physicists, that the, the fundamental basic laws of physics that we are able to write don't distinguish the past from the future. So this opened a huge question, where does this come from? <laughs> and, uh, and there's a long story about uh, that goes through heat, thermodynamics, uh, entropy, statistical mechanics. Uh, it's a meandering story. And we have understood that uh, the direction of time, which is such a the dis- dis- distinction between past and future, which is such an obvious reality for us, okay, past is fixed is uh, we remember it future is open we don't know anything about it this distinction doesn't go down to fundamental physics it comes up at some level of approximation it has a perspectival aspect of of it it's the world as we look at it it's not the world as it it is so yes it's a it's, it's a beautiful story it's not a story we fully understand that's a mysterious aspect of time physics tell us number of things about time the strongest being look time in nature is not your perception of it and it explains something pretty well but there are a number several of the passages in this uh, complexity of time which we don't understand well and the origin of the strangeness of the past the future is simple right the future future is how things evolve but why in the past uh, Things were so ordered, so particular that we can remember it, that it seemed so fixed. This is not clear yet. I mean, one of the things that's most refreshing to your basic arts graduate like me is that this is a book that spends, as well as the fact that it's full of Smurfs, for reasons that... <laughs> I don't know. Why did you choose Smurfs, incidentally? Because I like them. <laughs> Very good answer. It, it started, well, it started because I, I needed a... I need a picture, a little, a little figure of, of of a young guy and an old guy, and that was perfectly there. The old, the old guy, Smurfs. Well, that I mean that bears on what I was saying. You know, you're a Renaissance man. You know, you spend a lot of time talking in this book. You know, you take on Descartes and Heidegger and Kant, and you know, um, there's sort of you quote Rilke. You know, there's a lot of literature and philosophy that you engage with when you're trying to come at this from this perspectival angle. You know, you're saying that. So much of time is an aspect of human experience, and you need to understand how humans have expressed it to sort of investigate that in some extent. Do you think it is possible to marry in some way, to arrive at a sort of theory of everything that will sort of marry the mathematical observations about how time operates in nature and, I guess, the theory of mind, the neurological and biological and cultural aspects of how human beings perceive time? Definitely yes, because um, I think it's not only possible, it's what we need. 
if we want to understand time, we need uh, something that comes from physics, something that comes from uh, our study of the brain, uh, something that comes from philosophy. And in fact, I would go further. I, I think we also need something that comes from uh, considering our emotional relation to time. That's why I bring also poets and literature in. And there's a great lecture of time coming from Proust, for instance, which I mention in the in the book. So not only is possible, but I think uh, is needed uh, for understanding time, bringing together this different, different knowledge we have. I actually think it's a larger point. Culture makes sense if it is integrated, uh, if it talks together. Science makes sense when it talks to philosophy, when it talks to literature, and uh, philosophy makes sense when it's aware of science, when it talks to literature, and so on. Great philosophy has always been great, strongly informed by science, and the best science has been strongly informed by philosophers. It's in the dialogue that who cares about the details of the mathematics of science unless it contributes to our integrated vision of the world. Now, however, you said in your question, can we hope and do we want to get to the final theory of everything in which everything gets together? Well, that's, I think, it's too much a hope. I don't know if in some future evolution of humanity we'll get there, sort of before killing one another, uh, destroying ourselves. But certainly we're not there. We are far, in my opinion, from any ultimate vision, ultimate understanding. We are in a path. Humanity is in a path of understanding. So we learn here and there. We bring the pieces together and we keep going. And we will, we are aware of our, of how limited is our knowledge. But that's okay. And uh, we try to put, put together the pieces and get at every moment the, the best picture of reality that we can. Speaking of this need for science and the arts to speak to each other, I mean, there was a, you're obviously a shining example of you know a scientist who's equally at home in philosophy and literature. But some years ago, you know, C.P. Snow wrote his famous essay on the two cultures, and he seemed to point something certainly at the time that was a really serious divide. Do you think things have improved since then? Do you think we're now in a situation where literary writers are engaging with science in a serious and useful way, and vice versa? It has improved the situation in terms of recognizing that uh, the uh, separation uh, is a mistake. Somehow there was in the past uh, a moment in which the separation was considered good. And there was a certain arrogance of both sides uh, of, you know, we, we, we detain the truth and <laughs> the other yeah. side don't. I think this is largely over. I know of scientists engaged in a dialogue outside science, and I know certainly of philosophers enormously interested in uh, Yes, in I mean, people like Daniel Dennett, whose theory of right. philosophical theory of mind is very informed by right. neurologists. And so. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the philosophers in Oxford or in, uh, in, in the US all over who know science in deep and in depth. More than that, there is a lot of literature which is informed by science, which is inspired by science, which is motivated by science. Like in the past, right? Best past. You just begin to read, uh, I don't know, Musil, the, the, the man without quality. It starts with science and, uh, and it's inspired by science. The separation is now denounced, uh, is still very much, nevertheless, in education, and in the large culture of the people. I mean, it's surprising how many people still today, in many countries, uh, UK being one of these, uh, 
have, have a wonderful large uh, culture and they're almost proud of not knowing anything about science. You know, you know these great minds that know everything about history and literature and say, oh, I don't understand anything about physics. This is so stupid, right? It's, uh, it's equally stupid when a scientist says, oh, I don't understand, it, understand anything about literature. I don't read any literature. Well, I mean, everybody's allowed to be stupid and ignorant, but... This is being stupid and ignorant. Yeah, you're, you're allowed, but you shouldn't be admired. <laughs> right, but but you lose something for yourself if you do. And uh, I think the education system should be less uh, separating. The, this happened in many countries. In some countries, a little bit less. Germany is not too bad in that. I mean, some um, Italy also has some some attempt at least to give young people a larger education as much as possible. France is a disaster, and the UK is not very good in that either. So you get a great scientific education. There's no doubt you can get a fantastic scientific education in the UK. You can get a great education in the humanities, but it's hard to get enough of both. There is a point in which you have to specialize, obviously. We cannot be, it's no Leonardo today. (laughs) (laughs) You have to specialize and do your own thing. But you do your own thing as much as possible with larger culture. And, And more important... Everybody's entitled to know the basics of where we are in science and in literature and in philosophy and in history and in arts and in music. In terms of starting on the basis, I mean, as well as saying, you know, the math tells us that Kant got it wrong, you also delve into philosophy of mind. You seem to say Descartes got it wrong, you think. (laughs) It's it's quite a bold claim. Uh, Well, look, I come from science and nobody, no young kid in university has any problem in saying here Newton got it wrong. Right? It's a fact that he got it wrong. Does this diminish the greatness, the immense greatness of you? No, of course. I mean, uh, he got it so right in <laughs> so many things. Uh, and his theory works so well in describing the world at our scale in a certain regime. Uh, but if you compute the movement of Mercury using Newton equation, it just doesn't describe what Mercury actually does. So he's badly wrong there. And he's wrong conceptually because his own idea of time doesn't fit with what we know time does because of generativity and, and so on and so forth. I think that there's a good sense in which philosophy works like that as well. We have learned from Descartes immensely. I mean, Descartes is one of the columns on which modern thinking stands. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there are some things that he got wrong. There's no doubt he got wrong. And that's good because I think... I am one of the scientists that more look at the past and read the past. I mean, I read Descartes, and I'm fascinated by him. I learn from him. But the good reading means also saying, good, this I buy, this I don't buy. Not because we are a depository of final knowledge, but because we know more. I mean, after Descartes, we have been reading Newton and Kant and Leibniz and Wittgenstein and so on and so forth. Do you think that the, the old notion of determinism, which was very attractive to people, I think, you know, T.S. Eliot's line, you know, if all time is eternally present, all time is irredeemable, has the sort of, as it were, wobbliness of quantum physics been what's done away with that? Maybe that's a slightly simplistic way of putting it, but the idea that if we have this sort of cause and effect chain, if you knew everything, you could predict exactly what was going to happen in the future. Has that been sort of wiped out by yes. modern maths? Is that Completely. essentially what? Completely. So Laplace could say in the 18th century, if you knew the exact position of the atoms of all the molecules of the universe today, you could predict the future forever. And we know this is false. We know for a fact this is false. Now, there is still a debate. There are some people who say, well, there are some people that try to resist against quantum mechanics telling us that determinism 
is dead. And say, well, but there is determinism, it's just that we actually do not have access to all the information. We are in principle cut out from all the information which would be needed. But if we could have all this information, we could do that. So there is still people who try to read quantum mechanics deterministically. This is called the Bohm interpretation of quantum mechanics. It's a sort of last desperate retreat, because even if you buy that, it remains the fact that is in principle non-accessible, the information you need to do. So the world is unpredictable. But what is rarely said and should make us reflect that the world is unpredictable in both directions, past and future. According to quantum mechanics, if I have all the possible information available about the present, I cannot predict the future, but I cannot reconstruct, say, or predict or know about the past either equally. They're both unpredictable. There's a dual... Little well, in the sense that, that any position now has been sort of overdetermined. In the sense that the value of the variables now, the state of the world now, could equally come from different pasts. Yeah, sure. And there's nothing in the present that tell us from which of the alternative pasts it would come. There's a little dual article by Einstein in which he points this out, which is, uh, he was the first one who clearly realized that. So... Quantum mechanics does not make the future open. It makes the future and the past open, (laughs) (laughs) which is a bit disconcerting, right? Because we have this idea that the past is fixed. But the idea that the past is fixed is only because we have memories of the past. There are traces of the past. There are obvious traces in the past. If you see a crater on the moon is the impact of a stone that fell in the moon in the past, not in the future. It's clear. Well, it turns out that this is an effect of thermodynamics. It's a statistic, it's a probabilistic thing. The laws of physics don't say that the past is more capable of leaving traces than the future. It's only because of thermodynamics, it's only because of probability, so it's ultimately even that a perspectival effect. The connection between causes and effect, cause came before an effect, is only because of the second law of thermodynamics, because there's nothing else that distinguishes the past and the... And the second law of thermodynamics is probability, is perspectival. So physics requires us to change our idea of the relation between the past and the future in some very deep way, including causation, including memories. Feels like that when there's that famous quip, wasn't there, that when somebody said, well, Heraclitus said you can't step in the same river twice, somebody else said, well, you can't step in the same river once. Um, it sounds <laughs> exactly. to me like saying there's no river at all. <laughs> Can I ask funny? I mean, one of the sort of moving parts of the book is in your coda. You start talking about the fear of death and about, you know, our position in time. And you say, you know, you have no fear of death and that the fear of death is a sort of evolutionary mistake in some way. Or in, I yeah. can't remember the expression you, you put it. You've got a very pithy way of putting it. Do you think that your very sort of relaxed attitude to extinction is one that's temperamental or is it one that you've arrived at through thinking about time and about what your understanding of the universe oh i i don't know for me certainly it was a path in which i i went through which included my thinking about nature i go there not as a it's not cosmetic or just willing to take myself as a uh, there is a key point which i try to make which is what i try to do in the book is bring everything that allows us to explain time. Time is a deeply emotional topic for all of us uh, because uh, time 
opens up the future for us, but also takes away life from us, right? Time is a great destroyer and uh, the great teacher, but then it kills all its pupils. It's not, I think, that this emotional character of time, uh, I don't think is, is a sort of fog that makes us more hard to understand rationally what is time, because a lot of our perception and idea of time is exactly this emotional coloring that comes with it. So time has a side which is physical, has a side which is perspectival, thermodynamical, has a side which depends on our brain, and has a side which is our emotion of passing time. So at the end of the book, I want to talk about that as well, because I think it's key for understanding time. You said that some point it's related to consciousness. Yes, we are this opening in the set of the event of the world which is created by our brain having memories, having anticipations. And we have this machine, our brain, that through memories and anticipation opens up this thing we call time. And this is not a rational thing, this is an emotional thing because we're driven to that. We're evolutionarily designed to look ahead in time. So this is what time is for us, is the motion of time. And I think that realizing that helps us to tell something about ourselves and perhaps even to be less scared by the passage of time. Carlo Rovelli, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much.